Sylvia Borstein is, to me, the Jewish grandmother of the American mindfulness movement. As someone who knows Jewish grandmothers, because I had two of them, I have very warm associations here. What I really love about Sylvia, in addition to all the ways in which she's such a skillful teacher, she's such a an honest presentation of herself in the world. You know, I think because of media construction of what we may think of about what the word Buddhist might bring to mind or a contemplative spiritual teacher might bring to mind is someone who just kind of rises above it all and never has a care in the world. That is not Sylvia. She is very honest, very evocative, very vivacious, very present and very, very honest as well, too, about the fact that she has struggles with her own mind in the same way so many of us do as well, too. She articulates this through one of my favorite stories of hers from her wonderful little book called It's Easier Than You Think. I'm going to say that again. It's easier than you think. (laughs) From a story called The Woman on the Beach in the Guaymas. Now, if you don't know where the Guaymas are, they're right there. That's the point on the map. On the edge of the Sonora Desert in Mexico, right on the water. She says this story took place decades ago at this point. And she never learned the name of the woman who was one of Sylvia's best teachers. It went like this. The story did. She was staying at a large, modern, all-convenience, air-conditioned hotel. And she was high up above the ground. And she saw down below a caravan park, a camper park, where people would come and spend days or weeks or months. And during the time that she was there, she got to know one of its inhabitants who was there for months. Again, she didn't know this woman's name. She just said, my woman on the beach in the Guaymas. Turns out this person's story was that she was down from Los Angeles where she didn't like spending the summers. And so she was spending the entire summer on this beach in the Guaymas. She was there with her four-year-old John and her toddler, about 18 months, two years. Her husband would fly down every weekend in kind of, a, as I envision, a rickety old propeller plane and come down and spend time with them and then fly back for professional reasons to Los Angeles every weekend, back and forth and back and forth. And as Sylvia started to hear this woman's story, she started to recognize that she had a certain perception, a certain mental filter. Everything about this woman's story caused her concern. (laughs) A woman on the beach with two little kids far from home. What about food? What about fresh water? What about medical care if the kids got sick? What if something happened to their tent? What if, what if, what if? Everything she envisioned could go wrong was going wrong in her mind with this woman's story. She said the actual woman on the beach in the Guaymas seemed to be having a perfect and lovely time. One night, there was a huge, large, blustery storm, kind of similar to the storm that blew through last night if you got woken up by it. She said the sky was like fireworks. And she could see the torrential rains draining down from her safe perch high above in the air-conditioned hotel room. The next morning, she hurried down to the beach to see if her woman down by the water was okay. And she could see tents and containers and coolers strewn all over the place. And people were cleaning up. And she said, are you okay? She said to her woman. And she said, 
I'm doing great. <laughs> How'd you survive the storm? All good. The baby slept through it, but I woke John, my four-year-old, up so he wouldn't miss any part of it at all. It was so magnificent. <laughs> and Sylvia stepped back, and she said, there is a different way to do life. <laughs> she said that with no judgment or shame about her own perspective. Just that what she had seen and perceived in this situation as strewn with hazard and peril the woman on the beach in the Guaymas saw as a grand adventure and a tremendous amount of fun. Sylvia concludes this story by saying, <clears throat> it would be great if from that very moment I never worried about anything again. <laughs> but that would be a complete lie. Because the truth is she has a particular lens for this lifetime. And part of that lens includes just this urge to be kind of concerned about the perils of this world, which, of course, are real. What she took from this teacher on the beach in the Guaymas already is just recognize how automatic that lens comes down over how she perceives the world. And to be able to stand back from it a little bit, and to recognize that there are other possibilities about how to perceive life. This is what makes Sylvia such a great teacher. Because she speaks heart to heart for those of us who struggle with our own automatic assumptions and perspectives upon our lives. And encourages us through her teachings, through her own articulation of the Dharma, the Buddhist teaching. To maybe stand back and step back a little bit, not with judgment, but with compassion. And to recognize when those automatic thoughts come. And so to be a little less rigid, <laughs> a little bit more flexible, and so give ourselves more room to maneuver in this life with compassion and love and connection. I think of this teaching in connection with this current message series, Daily Bread, a series for the new year here at Wellsprings. Now, if you grew up in a particular tradition or you might recognize it from another context in your life, daily bread, you will probably know, comes from the Lord's Prayer or what has become to be known as the Lord's Prayer within the Christian scriptures. And one of the things I love about this, this prayer that I didn't grow up with, I grew up Jewish. I did not grow up with the Lord's Prayer at all. It was novel to me when I first encountered it. I love that two words are used very intentionally within the space of just a small sentence. Give us this day our daily bread. Whenever a writer says something that close together repetitively, you know they're trying to emphasize it. So the thing is, in the ancient Near East, starvation was something that people, not metaphorically, literally had to live with the threat of. And so I think what that teacher was trying to say is that sometimes, sometimes, planning is necessary, reviewing our lives is necessary, but sometimes all of us can get hooked by our fears and we can lose touch with the present moment. And so both literally and metaphorically, recognizing what happens when we close up tight because life is painful and all the ways that emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, interpersonally, that can freeze us 
and keep us from connecting with the one place in which we can actually make change in our lives, which is right here and right now, in this present moment. This is the only place that life is really happening for us in this moment. I think this is important for people of any faith or no faith, and I think it is also particularly important for those of us who call ourselves Unitarian Universalists, if you identify as a Unitarian Universalist. The reason for this is that we love to herald ourselves as a tradition without any dogma, without any religious dogma, without any spiritual dogma, without any doctrine that holds us in or tightens us up. And that is true, but, and, but. (laughs) Before any of us were Unitarian Universalists, We were people, and people have a natural habitual tendency to get hooked with our thoughts and feelings, and that kind of dogma comes before any religious dogma, and by what I mean by dogma, something very particular. Dogma is the belief, or even more the practice, that any perspective, thought, feeling, experience is fixed and final and cannot be moved away from or even moved toward. It is just what it is and finalized. I think we can all get mixed up with these dogmas many of us hold within and between our ears or within our hearts. Because these kinds of fusions or confusions, they tend to cause us or other people to suffer and to struggle when we think our lives are fixed and final, rather than being more free, more flexible, and more fulfilled. Because life, of course, is change. And to expect anything to be fixed and final is to actually be breaking faith with life itself. This is a part of our tradition at its deepest and most mature articulations. William Ellery Channing might be a name that is familiar to some of you. He was the first president, the first leader of the first denominational-ish form of Unitarianism in America. And there's a litany, a, a reading of his that you can find online. I think it's quite lovely. It's archaic because it's from the 1820s. But it begins with, I call that mind free. I call that mind free. And then he articulates how that is. And I like this particular section of it. I call that mind free, which does not content itself with a just a passive or hereditary faith. I call that mind free, which opens itself to light from wherever it may come, which receives new truth as an angel from heaven. This is kind of the heart of what this tradition is about. And I take great inspiration from it, whether it's within our tradition, like Channing, or beyond our tradition, like Borstein. Because the truth is for me that that worry, that instinctive eh, seeing peril, seeing danger, I have kind of an Eeyore mind as one of my lenses. And underneath that worry is actually something that's even a little bit more painful for me that I find I get hooked in on a regular basis. Wayne and Garth say it in a funny way. We're not worthy. We are not worthy. And sometimes when I'm able to unhook from this sense of my own unworthiness, I will hear in my mind Wayne and Garth shouting, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Do you know they were saying that to Aerosmith? Remember the original context? Okay, it's important to remember the original context of what our teachers were teaching. Aerosmith. 
but sometimes I'm not able to unhook with it from humor so well. It is one of my earliest lenses that sometimes I've even made work to my own advantage. And I don't think it's an example of wrongness or badness or sinfulness or any of that kind of nonsense. I just think it's a lens mentally. When I look at my family of origin, I can see where it comes from. That is one of my instincts in this life. When something goes wrong, automatically one of the first things I will do is wonder what I did wrong. And if I'm really hooked by it, I will wonder about why am I so wrong? What is wrong with me? That is a pretty rigidifying thought, folks. <laughs> it doesn't give me a lot of room to move when I really get hooked by it. And so let me even bring it here, right here, right into Wellsprings, right into our life together. Some of you know, and I've tried to be very open and honest about this, that for the first decade or so of Wellsprings, I was CEO and lead minister. And then I burned out. And the thing is, I didn't really recognize that I was burning out when I was burning out. I just knew something was off. And for those of you who I was working with at the time, you may remember it wasn't very pleasant to be with me at times. And I am still trying because that is an honest part of my life without shame, to make a living amends through my continuing to evolve ministry here, to do something different. And as unpleasant at times as it may have been to be with me and work with me, I got to tell you it was magnified a thousand percent in this space between my ears. Why couldn't I do this better? What is wrong with me? Those were the thoughts I was getting hooked on on the regular back then. And so let me just pause right here and right now and say this. I am not looking for validation from you after the service today. I am doing my work and I have done my work on this. And folks, I believe in preaching from your scars and not your wounds. This is not a wound. <laughs> this is a scar. I'm not looking for validation. I just wanted to give you a little insight into how and what this looks like in my life when I can think that the automatic perspective I can bring to things is the natural perspective rather than just one perspective and lose touch with possibilities and openness and flexibility. And then not too long ago, and this is well after I had kind of been doing this work for quite a while and started to heal and started to feel more open, more free, more flexible here with you. Some of you have actually reflected that back to me very specifically in the time that you've known me, especially in the last few years. One of our teens came up, one of my best teachers. <laughs> and apropos of nothing, from what I could tell, <laughs> said, just blurted it out and then kind of walked away. <laughs> it must be so gratifying to you to have started this. <laughs> I think of Borstein. There is another way to do my life. <laughs> my automatic assumptions are not the truth. Now, I can also say I wish those old thoughts didn't come up anymore. They do all the time. I imagine they'll be with me through what I hope is a long life for many years, even after this 49th year turns into my 50th soon. 
I just know how not to get as hooked. The best, most consistent way I know how to do this is by simply noticing. Simply noticing. Because the truth is, there are many different forms of what I call my spiritual practice, which I know is the same spiritual practice for many of you. But the key part of it is simply noticing. Notice when I get stuck, and notice when I get hooked. And then with a kind of compassionate, gentle awareness, take the hook out. (laughs) Because struggling against being hooked when we're hooked, literally think of a fish, (laughs) just makes you, all of us, more hooked, right? After we get done telling the story about our lives, we can step back. And hopefully with some appreciation and kindness to ourselves, after we get done telling the story about our lives, which so often are those automatic stories about blame and shame and wrong, we might actually be able to ask ourselves this simple question. What is actually happening with my life? (laughs) Daily bread. Present moment. It is because attention is our most precious natural resource. And to pay attention to ourselves or another person with a full directed concentration and focus, it is an expression and a regular act of love. And when we're able to get in touch with our lives in those ways, very often, at least reliably from my experience, I find I can just deal better and open up a little bit more. As another of our great teachers taught us to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. Mary Oliver, I love that she puts in that word endless. (laughs) It takes the burden off of some of us who think, am I there yet? (laughs) Have I gotten over it already? Nah, and that's totally all right. With some of this comes those loosenings of the I am's in the moment. And we can find out that what is left when we step back from all the habits and the mental conditions and the conditioning and the over-identifications is we find something just like life. And something also just like love. And we find that we can deal just a little bit better. It makes me think of this image. The first album I ever owned. I was 10 years old, November of 1980. And my parents bought it for me. I didn't really know much about the Beatles or John Lennon at that point. I hadn't come into my own musical taste, although I very much would in years to come. But my parents are baby boomers. That's just they did. They bought John Lennon and Yoko Yoko Ono albums for their kids. And although at the time I had no idea what John and Yoko were singing about... (laughs) In time to come, I got a sense. So the thing is, for me, is if you take the top 10, 20, 25, 50 Beatles songs, at least, probably much more than half of them are all John songs. And if you ask me who my least favorite Beatle is as a person, it is absolutely John Lennon, especially when he was with the Beatles. He was a fantastic jerk. He was mean, he was petty, he was cruel, he was vindictive. 
That's just the honest truth about John Lennon. And he grew beyond it, fortunately. And even when he um, stumbled upon you know, the power of love or uh, transcendental meditation, he was so arrogant that the way he spoke about these things, it was as if he was the first person to ever discover them. <laughs> but he wasn't. But here's the thing. What I love about Double Fantasy, about this album, there's a song called Watching the Wheels. And what it strikes me is that John, at that point of his life, had learned to step back from all those over-identifications, from all the causes and all the things he thought were going to fix him. And he could sing this with authenticity. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. No longer riding on the merry-go-round. I just had to let it go. You can hear in the gentleness with which he sings that. And I get a sense that he really meant it. And he had found a different way of relating to his own inner life and the ways that he got hooked. And of course, if you know the rest of the story, it was only weeks later that he was assassinated. And so that's part of the sadness and the tragedy that we didn't get to see more of this mature John Lennon with his immense talent and his deep caring about the world from the place of this acceptance and grace that it looked as if he was getting in touch with. I at least do take some comfort that even though he died much earlier than he should have, and by violence, he died in a place of self-acceptance. So he didn't get the chance to go on and do that work. But the thing is, right, at least for right now, all these people I'm looking at, we do. We get the chance to do that work. And I would say that this is so needed and so necessary right now. This world in which a continent is literally on fire. And there will be others. This world in which the threat of war hangs over us right now, this moment. This world in which these essential Unitarian Universalist values, the things we hold in our hearts, the things that could transform this life, these things are regularly under threat and not just under threat, under intentional assault. I think it is so necessary to be able to work with our minds in this way so that we don't get hooked (laughs) and get lost in the most negative, painful stories we can tell about ourselves or about this world. Because ultimately, that's the sustainable peace that allows us to continue to care for ourselves and for this world. I call those kinds of minds free. And I call those kinds of minds exactly what our hurting world needs most right now. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy source. We can open ourselves to the capacity for today's bread. But even that might be too long a time span. Maybe we can take instructions from the breath that is spirit and the spirit that is breath. There isn't even any daily breath. There is only this breath. And let us take it in consciously aware of ourselves, aware of how we are right now in this moment, aware of what it is to be here and now. 
And then we can release that breath and allow ourselves to settle in just a bit. Inhabit our experience as best we can. And then open ourselves again. Because you know what? Here it comes once more. Another breath. Another opportunity to be fully alive. Amen.